0: Okay, well, good evening again. Can I have you turn with me to the book of, uh, turn with me to the book of Exodus chapter 9? I'll warn you we won't be in it very long. Okay. Uh, last time we were in Exodus, we were in chapter nine and we got as far as looking at the first six plagues that God brought upon Egypt. I had planned to finish looking at the last four plagues tonight, but instead, Instead, I'd rather focus on something else that comes out of the text, something I feel is very important that we understand from a doctrinal point of view. We will then, by God's grace, finish looking at the ten plagues next time. So let's just look at Exodus 9. I want to pick it up in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart, and on your servants, and on your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose I have raised you up, speaking of Pharaoh, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Now, guys, we have to be careful that we don't misinterpret what God is saying concerning Pharaoh. There are those who believe that God is saying that basically we are nothing more than puppets. Pharaoh was a puppet. God only created Pharaoh for one reason, and that was to use him to show himself strong through to the people of this world. But Pharaoh had no choice in the matter. He had no free will. Uh, He had no choice but to refuse to let God's people go because God hardened his heart and predestined, listen, predestined in eternity past that Pharaoh would be an object of wrath, a pawn in the hands of God, a person that God forced to harden his heart and then, listen, sent him to hell for having a hard heart. Now, we dealt with the issue of Pharaoh's free will last time we met. It's been a couple of weeks. I'd like to delve into this subject a little more deeply tonight. Um, This is such an important subject, and you know why? Not only because Paul thought it was so important, he focused on it in Romans 9, but it gets to the very subject of God's character. I think we will all agree that understanding God and his character, we don't want to misunderstand God's character. It's critical that we understand who God really is, what he has done, because if we misunderstand God, the devil will have us where he wants us, and then he can begin to work on that misunderstanding of God's character and take it in all kinds of different directions, which will warp our understanding of God and so on. So again, Paul thought this was such an important subject that in Romans chapter 9, he talks about this very passage out of Exodus 9 and uses Pharaoh as an example of those who hardened their hearts toward God. So I'd like to have you turn to Romans 9, and we will spend the rest of our time tonight in Romans chapter 9. And I feel justified in doing this because Paul quotes this very section in Exodus. He thought it was pretty important, and he wanted to get something across that we need to know. So in Romans 9, let's pick pick it up in verse 6, we read, Paul the Apostle saying, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. In other words, just because you're born a Jew doesn't mean you're really, really saved, redeemed people of God. Nor are, there, are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. They were both his blood descendants. But uh, God said that only Isaac was the uh, son of promise, was really a child of God. Verse 8, that is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, For the children, not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works but of him who calls, it was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. The Greek is actually I have loved less. Verse 14, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says, of Pharaoh, or says to Pharaoh, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Now I want you to put your thinking cap on tonight because tonight's study is going to be very doctrinal. Exodus, that's historical narrative, and it's a lot lighter in the sense that we follow the flow of the narrative. But I want you to really try to concentrate tonight because this is pure doctrine, and it's something that is very important for us to understand. Look, as you read these verses in Romans, and we're not We're going to go as far as verse 24, but as you read this, it does seem that God is saying we are nothing more than puppets in his hands and that we have no free will and only do what he forces us to do. Furthermore, it seems from what Paul would go on to say uh, down through verse 24, that God has created some to be vessels of mercy. In other words, they were created for heaven. And the rest, he determined, would be vessels of wrath, those that he created for hell. But guys, is that really what Paul is teaching here? Remember, he starts off this section in Romans, in verse 14, by saying, basically, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. See, the problem is, when we come to a difficult passage, where it seems as though God is acting in a way that's uh, not consistent with his character, or in a way that seems even unrighteous. Know this, God can never act unrighteously. Therefore, we need to dig deeper into the passage to fully understand what's going on. This is one of those passages. I will tell you that Romans 9 is one of the most controversial passages in all the Bible because of the way some people handle it and interpret it. But Paul is defending, first of all, guys, God's right to choose, listen, who he wants to bless or who he wants to show mercy to. And he uses Isaac and Jacob as examples. And then secondly, Paul is defending God's right not to bless those he chooses not to bless using Ishmael and Esau as examples. Now, from our study in Genesis, we've already learned that God chose Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau even though they were the younger, and Ishmael and Esau were the older, and in the Jewish economy, the older sons were always blessed over the younger. But God pulled a kind of a switcheroo and said that even though Ishmael was older than Isaac, Isaac would be the one he would bless. Even though Jacob was technically younger than Esau, Jacob was the one God singled out to bless. God has the right to do that, doesn't he? He's God. And then, to illustrate God's right to show mercy to whomever he chooses, Paul is going to use a situation from the life of Moses. And to illustrate God's right not to show mercy or bless whomever he chooses, God is Paul, I should say, is going to use Pharaoh as an example. Now, I'm not going to get into this in detail, although you may think I lied after tonight's study. Um, but believe me, we could spend weeks and weeks going through this. I'm not going to do that, all right? but I do think it's important enough to take a night to at least give you a working knowledge of what I believe Paul is actually saying here. Look, he says in verse 15, talking about now Moses and how God uh, chose to show Moses mercy and grace. He says in Romans 9:15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will. I will have compassion. And that gets back into something that happened in uh, Exodus 32, which we'll study eventually, where the children of Israel, at one point, Moses up on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, right, the law. And uh, in the valley, the people uh, kind of twist Aaron's arm to build them a golden calf. Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. People got restless, build us a golden calf that we might worship, this calf and uh, whatever. And so Aaron did that, and God said to Moses at one point, you better get yourself down, your people, f- your people. <laughs> Moses, are not my people, they're your people, Lord. They went back and forth uh, with that. But God says, get down, your people have corrupted themselves, and so on. Moses went down, saw them, you know, uh, dancing and carrying on in a very lewd way around this golden calf. Moses throws the tablets of the law on the ground, smashes them, pronounces judgment upon the people, and God wipes out a whole bunch. And God said to Moses, though, before that, he said, Look, I'm gonna wipe out everybody. I'll just keep you. I'll start, I'll start a new nation with just you. Moses, of course, intercedes on behalf of the people, and God relents and does not judge them all. But at one point, Moses says, Lord, he says, I want to see your glory. And that's what God says to him, what Paul quotes in Romans chapter 9. We pick it up in Exodus 33, verse 19. Then he, God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And here's where Paul quotes now in Romans 9. He said, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And that, folks, is basically the definition of sovereignty. God can choose to bless or to have mercy or compassion on whomever he wills. And sometimes the people that deserve it the least, God chooses to bless the most. That's his prerogative, right? Notice that God did not say, I will send to hell whom I will send to hell. The issue in God choosing Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau, listen, had nothing to do with their salvation but only dealt with God's special blessing upon each man's life on this earth, on this earth. In fact, the issue in view in Romans 9, verses 12 to 15, is the election of God in choosing some for special service and blessing. And guys, again, isn't that God's prerogative? To choose whomever he wants to use and to bless on this earth. Now, this is exactly the point Paul is emphasizing in Romans 9. God singled out Isaac and Jacob for special blessing. What was that blessing? Well, to be in the Messianic line. It would be through them and their descendants that Messiah would eventually be born. That's a pretty great blessing, wasn't it? But listen to me. Isaac and Jacob still had to choose to believe in God and in the promises of God for salvation just like everybody else. Just because God chose them for a special blessing didn't mean it automatically meant they were saved. Just like God chose Israel, now nationally speaking, to be a special blessing to the world, to be a light, to be an object lesson to the rest of the world, that if a people would choose the Lord as their God and serve Him and honor Him through obedience, He would bless that nation above every other nation on the face of the earth. So Israel was singled out by God for special blessing. They were elected for that special purpose. But listen, just because everyone in the nation had been elected by God for a special purpose didn't mean that they were all automatically saved. Every person in the nation, every Jew, still had to exercise saving faith to be saved. I mean, many Jews in both the Old and New Testaments lived and died as unbelievers and went to hell, even though, listen, they were all called God's chosen people, which is what the word elect means, chosen. Chosen. But I want you to see that when, Paul, when the Bible talks about Israel being elect, a lot of Jews died and went to hell because they weren't believers. God can single out a nation for special blessing, like America. That doesn't mean everybody in America is automatically saved. I believe, like Israel, God raised our nation up to be a light to the world. And in the beginning, we were a light to the world, but like Israel, we have turned our backs on God. We give him lip service, but we really aren't living for him as we once did. But I believe God raised up America, put us in a special, he elected us to be a light to the rest of the world. That does not mean for one second that every American is automatically saved just because God chose us to be a light, just like God chose Israel. Just because God chose some, again, elected them for special blessing, didn't mean they were all automatically saved, listen, any more than it meant that those that he did not choose for special blessing were automatically condemned to hell. Now, Calvinists like to point out how that when Israel sinned with the golden calf in the wilderness, that God chose to kill 3,000 and the others he spared. This, they say, was based entirely on God's sovereign will. But if you go to Exodus chapter 32 and read verse 26, before God brought judgment, listen to the invitation he gave to the people. Exodus 32 verse 26, Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, whoever believes in God and wants to be faithful to him is the ideal, come to me and all the sons of Levi gather themselves together to him. Now, this was in preparation for God's judgment. They were all given, the whole nation was given the opportunity to escape judgment based on choosing to follow the Lord or not, just as we are given a choice in salvation. Same choice. In Romans nine sixteen, we read, So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now Calvinists interpret this to mean that salvation does not depend on man's will, what he wants. It is something God does totally apart from man. We're not even in the equation. It's whatever God sovereignly determines. So when eternity passes, God says, I'm going to choose you, you, and you for heaven, and the rest of you I'm going to send to hell without ever having a chance to be saved. It's called the doctrine of predestination and reprobation. Calvinists and Reformed Folks, also like to quote John 1, verse 13. I'll just read it to you, where John talks about those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And again, Calvinists interpret this to mean that the new birth or salvation isn't the result of a person exercising their free will to believe in Jesus. No. They claim God has sovereignly decided who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, just as we just mentioned a second ago and man has no choice in the matter. Well, in answer to this, John 1.12 makes it clear that the new birth is obtained by all, listen, by all who believe and receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, not by those upon whom it is forced. God never forces salvation upon anybody, which means that salvation involves an act of free will. I'll read John 1.12 to you. But as many as what? Received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So God is not forcing people to believe or to be saved. He is offering them an invitation. He is saying, Come to me. And those that come, those that receive Christ, who believe in him, receive everlasting life. Well, again, Romans 9, verse 16, So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Listen, it's true that only God can be the source of saving mercy and grace. Jesus did say that no one can come to him unless the Father draws him or her. That's true. The Calvinists claim that God only draws the elect, though, to Christ. But Jesus said, If I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of his cross, I will draw all men and women to myself. I see that as a universal drawing of all people, not just the elect, because God would have said that. He would have said, Look, I only draw a certain amount of people the elect. But the gospel is for all mankind. If I be lifted up from the earth, Jesus said, I will draw all men and women to myself. Listen, just because God, though, draws a person to Jesus. And by the way, isn't that the ministry of the Holy Spirit? John 16? The Spirit of God, when He comes, would not testify of Himself, but would testify of Jesus. He would be drawing all men and women to Christ? Listen to me. I believe that the Father is drawing all people. But listen, just because God draws a person to Jesus doesn't mean they have to be saved. They can resist the grace of God. I don't believe and the Calvinist doctrine of irresistible grace. I don't believe that. I mean, this is what Jesus meant when he said that many are called, but few are chosen. The call of God has gone out to the whole world. Come, be saved. When a person receives Christ, and God, of course, knew who they would be, in eternity past, he chose them. Based on, and I know that a lot of people would like to run up here, and kill me now because, you know, they're really against this. Uh, They believe that God's grace is irresistible. You can't resist God. Otherwise, you're stronger than God. Well, no, because God has allowed us to resist him because he doesn't want anyone forced into heaven. So the call of God has gone out into the whole world. Many are called. Few are chosen. Chosen based on what God knew they would do when the gospel was presented to them, and he knew that in eternity past and therefore, based on what they would choose to receive Christ, he predetermined their eternal destiny. That's what predestination really means. Again, God is calling all men and women to be saved, but his grace and his mercy to be saved isn't forced on anyone and can be rejected. Now, having said all of that, I still see the focus here in Romans 9, not as being on salvation, but on God's right to bless the lives of anyone he chooses apart from anything we do to earn it. And then Paul quotes from our passage in Exodus 9 concerning Pharaoh, Romans nine seventeen, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Listen, is this saying that God hardens a person's heart with unbelief and then sell, sends them to hell for having a hard unbelieving heart. Again, that's the Calvinist doctrine of reprobation. That in eternity past, God just sovereignly decided that a whole bunch of people were going to be sent to hell without any chance of ever exercising saving faith to be redeemed. Because God withholds from them, they believe, the ability to exercise faith. Therefore, if God withholds it, they can't get saved. And so God has sovereignly chosen that many were created only for the fires of hell do you understand why this is an important subject what is your concept of what would your concept of God be if you believe that as one Calvinist said the God of Calvinism is a hard God to love well sure you've messed him up you've twisted him your God is not the God of the Bible I'm sorry My God would never create a whole bunch of people for hell without ever giving them a chance to be saved. Otherwise, God is not omnibenevolent, all-loving. His love is limited. And some even say, well, it is. He's all-loving to the elect, but he doesn't love anybody else. That's not the God of the Bible. That is not the God of the Bible. Again, as I have read my... And I've studied the Bible enough for many years. As I have studied the Bible, I see nowhere where it says God hardens anyone's heart who hasn't first hardened their heart toward God. Yes, it says repeatedly in Exodus that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But it's also true that it says that Pharaoh first hardened his heart toward God. In Exodus 9, verse 12, we read, But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not heed them. He didn't heed Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. This is the first time, as we talked about last week, uh, last time we met, this is the first time in the book of Exodus that we read the statement, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And it is true that back in chapter 4, verse 21, and back in Exodus 7, verse 3, God had said he would harden Pharaoh's heart, and here he does that very thing in uh, Exodus 9, verse 12. Yet, as we've already pointed out, six times before this, it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Before it says God hardened it, it says six times Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Exodus 7, verses 13 and 22. Exodus 8, verses 15, 19 and 32. And Exodus 9, verse 7. We see that God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart was simply, listen, was simply him making firm Pharaoh's own will. God didn't force him to do anything. He simply reinforced what Pharaoh wanted. The Hebrew word for hardened is kazakh, and it often means to strengthen or to make firm. So Pharaoh kept hardening his heart is the idea, and eventually God responded by making it even harder. And based on that, Paul says in Romans 9 verse 18, therefore, He has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills, he hardens. But once again, guys, this hardening is based on a person's decision to reject the truth of God, the gospel, for salvation. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 2. We see this in a coming future generation that Paul talks about the generation that will be alive when the Antichrist rises to power. Listen to what Paul says, Second Thessalonians 2 starting in verse nine. He says, "The coming of the lawless one, a title for the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan, with all power signs and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, listen, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Do you see it there? They rejected the gospel. Therefore, God, what? Hardened their heart. But because they hardened their heart first to the truth of God, then God said, if that's what you want, then I will harden your heart all the more, and you will then be subject to believing the lies. of. If you don't love my truth, you don't want my truth. You love darkness rather than light because your deeds are evil. If that's the course you want to go, then I will just make your heart all the more firm in that conviction and belief and you will be prey to the devil. You will fall for his lies. Look, the hardening of a person's heart by God is only after that person rejects God's love, his grace, and his truth. And so because they have rejected these things, God will eventually, if they don't repent, solidify them in their position and choice. And as Paul said in Romans 9, 14, does this mean that God is acting unrighteously? If he's hardening them in what they've already purposed and decided? If God comes along and says, well, if that's what you want, if that's your will, I'll make it even more firm. Is is God acting unrighteously? No, he's giving them what they want. That's why he says, certainly not, Paul said. Look, I believe it would be unrighteous of God if he was to zap a person with a hard heart of unbelief, force them to do all kinds of sinful, wicked things, and then judge them and send them to hell for doing all these sins and for having a hard heart of unbelief, that's basically what you're left with if you believe a lot of the Calvinist doctrines on this subject. That we have no free will, therefore, everything I do, God has forced me to do. God has hardened my heart. God has forced me to commit sin. You make God the author of sin? Is this my God? Is this our God of the Bible? That he is the author of sin? My goodness, this is so incredible. I just can't believe. And we have a lot of wonderful men and women who are Calvinist and reformed people who love the Lord. I just have never been able to get my mind around. And some of them are very, very intelligent. A lot smarter than me. This goes to show you that God can give a dummy like me grace to believe the truth, and a smart guy, like some of them, they can be deceived. It sounds like I'm talking pride. I'm not. I've just come to the Bible, and I just accept what it says. I don't try to read anything into it. And I just believe those who have come away with this idea that God is the author of sin, that he has chosen some in eternity past for heaven, the others he has reprobated to hell, that God, you know, forces people to do certain things because they have no free will, and then judges them for doing those things and for having a hard heart. You know what? That to me is not the God of the Bible. Not the God of the Bible. Again, that would be unrighteousness on God's part. But I know that God cannot act unrighteously, therefore I reject that doctrine. Rather, Paul said earlier in Romans chapter 2, Romans 2, verse 5, he said, but in accordance, listen now, people think chapter 9 is all about God's absolute sovereignty where people have no choice, they have no free will. But you'll find free will all throughout the book of Romans. In Romans 2, verse 5, listen to what Paul said. But in accordance with your hardness, And your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Look, God offers grace to be saved. Men and women harden their hearts by refusing to accept God's grace. And every time they do, they are storing up for themselves more judgment that they will have to then endure for eternity as they stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. So every time a person rejects the truth, rejects Christ, they are storing up more and more judgment. And Paul calls it righteous judgment. Why? Because he or she of their own free will has chosen to reject God's salvation of their own free will. And not that God has sovereignly chosen to send them to hell without them ever having a chance to be saved. But realize that God reserves the right to solidify or to make firm a person's heart in whatever choices he or she has made. That's why the Bible admonishes us, today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, of God speaking to you, don't harden your heart. Why? Because you may harden it to the point, and we don't know when that is for every person, but a person can only say no to Jesus Christ so often. Every time they do their heart, it's it a little harder, a little harder. Until finally they pass what we have called the spiritual point of no return. The Bible calls it the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now they, their fate is sealed. They can never be redeemed. Why? Because God won't allow it? No, their hearts are so hard they will never, they will never do it. They will never do it. That's why the Bible says, look, if you hear the voice of God speaking to your heart about getting right with him, don't harden your heart because you don't know. The next time you harden your heart, that might be the last time you harden your heart and you make it so hard you'll never receive Christ. And then your fate is sealed. God is looking for soft hearts that he can mold and use for his glory. But he will use a hard heart to get glory through if he has to. But you know what? It's a lot easier and nicer to have a soft heart and say, Lord, here I am. I just want to glorify you. I want you to be used by you. And God says, that's great. Come to me, my child, and I will use you. I will bless you, and I will give you eternal rewards. That's the right way to go, isn't it? Now, if a person says, no, I don't love you, I don't want to be your child, I don't want to live for you, God says, okay, you can choose to do that. But like Pharaoh found out, that's a painful way to go, isn't it? As the Bible says, woe to that person who strives with, or in other words, fights against their maker. When it comes to God's grace, somebody has said, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. The idea is that the same grace grace will melt a heart or harden a heart. It all depends on, on the condition of that person's heart. And that all depends on each individual person and how they choose to respond to the grace of God and the light he has given to them. Again, men can love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil, and they could reject the light, the truth of God. We see a lot of those characters in society today, don't we? I mean, they just revel in the darkness. There used to be a time when certain sins were so immoral and so heinous they were only done behind closed doors. Now there's parades in their honor. Oh, we have gotten so bad as a nation... That we celebrate sin. And not only that, people are calling good evil and evil good. So those of us who love the Lord, who want to live righteously, the world is attacking us. They're making us feel like we're the problem. When in fact, we know that we are only trying to live for the Lord. But um, one thing is certain. One thing is certain. God isn't zapping people with hard hearts just so he can send them to hell. That is not my God, that is not the God of the Bible. In fact, to close out the New Testament, to close out the entire word of God, God gives one final invitation in Revelation 22 verse 17. It says, the spirit and the bride say what? Come. Now, if God forces salvation on people because they don't really have a choice in the matter, he forces he wouldn't give, Invitations in the Bible. Those would be deceptive to say to somebody, Come to me, when in fact they have no choice in the matter. I mean, it's not, he might order them to come, but that's not what I see. These are invitations. Come. And let him who hears come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. So the idea is whoever wants to come to Christ. And drink of the living water that only He gives, salvation, eternal life, can come. And Jesus said, "Of all who come to me, I will cast out or turn away how many? None. Oh yeah, but you don't know what I've done in my life. doesn't matter. We're sin abounded, grace what? The, su- the Greek is superabounded. God's grace is more than enough to take care of whatever sin you've committed. I'm not advocating living a sinful life. I'm just saying, no person is so bad that the grace of God can't save them. But you have to come. You have to come. He's not going to force it on you. What Paul is teaching in Romans 9 is that God is going to get glory from our lives. This is the issue now. That God is going to get glory from our lives one way or another, because of us or in spite of us, but our God will make even the wrath of man to praise him. Doesn't matter what, you know, man can rail at God. He can be angry at God, and, and just, but God will use that person's life, like Pharaoh, to bring Himself glory. Uh, not an easy way to go, not the best way to go. You don't get any reward for it, because God's just using your hard heart against you, like Pharaoh. He's going to demonstrate His power through your life in one way or another. Unbelievers, God uses for His glory in ways that we could probably spend a lot of time thinking of different ways God has used unbelievers to be uh, an instrument in showing others of his goodness and love. If you resist God, though, reject Jesus and harden your heart, then God is not opposed to saying, again, God wants to get glory from our lives because we willingly give ourselves to Jesus. But if a person resists, rejects Jesus, hardens their heart, then God is not opposed to saying, look, if that's the course of action you want to take, if you don't want to glorify me willingly, well, that I'm going to use your hard heart against you, and I'm going to glorify my name in spite of you. And guys, that's exactly what he did with Pharaoh. Pharaoh didn't want to let God's people go free. Why? Because there were economic reasons why he hardened his heart to God. This was his labor force. There were practical economic reasons why Pharaoh hardened his heart. It wasn't that God zapped him with a hard heart, just out of the blue. Pharaoh hardened his heart. First of all, he didn't believe in the God of the Hebrews. How could a God of Hebrew slaves? I mean, they thought that the strongest nations had the strongest gods. Here, Egypt is the strongest nation on the face of the earth. I mean, you talk about the God of Hebrew slaves, how strong could he be? Can't even get his people out of slavery. So Pharaoh thought it was a joke to, to fear the God of the Hebrews, right? But secondly, he had some very practical reasons. He didn't want to let God's people go because he didn't want to lose his workforce and throw the Egyptian economy into a turmoil, a free fall. But God didn't just harden Pharaoh's heart against his will and then send him to hell for having a hard heart. I mean, knowing that, this is is very important. God knew that Pharaoh was going to harden his heart. Absolutely he knew that. God knows everything. And what did God do? Did he violate Pharaoh's free will? No. No. Knowing that Pharaoh would harden his heart against God when God had Moses and Aaron go to him to have him let God's people go, right? Knowing that Pharaoh would harden his heart, God placed this guy as king over all of Egypt. Why did he do that? To demonstrate God's awesome power through Pharaoh um, on behalf of his people. Uh, We read in Exodus 9.16 and Romans 9.17 that for this purpose, God, what? I raised you up. I raised, for what purpose? To use your own hard heart against you. I put you in a place of authority as king over the, uh, all the known world at that time. Because I knew you were going to exercise your heart, you were going to harden it against me, and therefore I would be able to then show myself strong through your hard heart by bringing the Ten plagues. Look, it's the very same thing Jesus did when he chose Judas to be one of his apostles. Did Jesus know Judas was going to betray him? Yes. Did Jesus force Judas against his will to betray Christ? No. He just took a guy who he knew would betray him and stuck him in a place of authority as one of his disciples or apostles, knowing that what Judas would do of his own free will? Because the plan of God needed to be fulfilled, that Jesus had to go to the cross. Somebody had to betray Christ. Judas was not a fall guy. He used his own free will to do exactly what God wanted. This is the beauty of our God. And this is where Calvinism, for me, falls far short. Calvinists basically believe that God programmed us as robots. We have no free will. God just sovereignly pushes the buttons and we have to respond the way he wants. Look, I've been down to Disney World. They're doing amazing things with automatons down there. Man can build robots, okay? It doesn't take God to build robots. It does take a very big God to take the free wills of six billion people on this planet and weave them into certain situations at certain times so that as they exercise their free will, they're doing exactly what God wanted and bringing about His divine purposes. That's a big God. That is our God. He's not violating anyone's free will. He's just plugging them into situations where he knows what they're going to do. And it happens to fit exactly what he has determined. Again, God didn't force Pharaoh to do anything, but instead used his own hard heart against them, just as Jesus did with Judas, as I just said. I mean, Pharaoh wasn't a poor pawn in the plan of God. You know, created by God for help, Who uh, God then gives him a hard heart. I mean, Pharaoh made his own choices and God used them to accomplish his divine purposes. Back in Romans chapter 9, verse 19, Paul says, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? And again, extreme Calvinists interpret this to mean that God's power in salvation is literally, listen, irresistible, regardless of what a person. Wills. There's a great book on this subject written by Norm Geisler. Uh, It's a book that uh, he entitled Chosen but Free. Chosen but free. Let me just read a small portion of that in regards to what we just read out of Romans. Geisler said, and I quote, it should be pointed out first that the phrase, who has resisted his will is not an affirmation by the biblical author. In other words, that's not what Paul is teaching, okay? But a question posed Uh, in the mouth of an objector. So Paul is raising up a hypothetical objector that is talking, but Paul is not, it's not Paul's teaching. Okay, It's it's a hypothetical situation. He says, note the introductory phrase, you will say to me then, a similar objector is introduced in Romans 3, verse 8. Why not say, let us do evil that good may come? So the idea that one cannot resist God's will uh, may be no more a part of Paul's teaching than the view that we should do evil, that good may come. Furthermore, Paul clearly rejects the objector's objector's stance uh, in the very next verse, saying, But indeed, O man, who are you to to reply against God? His answer implies that the objector can, can and is resisting God by raising this very question. But more importantly... The direct implication is that if God's will is is irresistible, then we should not be blamed for our actions, end quote. And guys, that really is the crux of this. I mean, if we are nothing more than puppets, forced to do whatever God wants without any free will on our part at all, uh, would it be righteous on God's part? if He's forcing us to do things, commit sins. I mean, would it be righteous on his part? to hold us accountable for the actions that he has forced us to do. I don't think it's that hard an issue, but there's a lot of people who bought into it. But they say, but you cannot resist God's will. It's irresistible. Is that what the Bible teaches? Because my Bible teaches that we are not puppets and can resist God's will. Just give you one verse, all right? One scripture. Remember when Stephen was standing before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council? And he was... uh, Giving his defense, he was on trial basically, and uh, he recounts their history and uh, how that, that you know they rejected Joseph at first, and then they rejected Moses at first, and now they have rejected Jesus, their own Messiah. And then he hits him with this one. This got him into a lot of trouble. He said, "You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears." You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Seems pretty clear to me. I can resist God's will. It's God's will that all of us go to heaven. It's God's will that none perish, but all should come to repentance. Does that mean that all will come to repentance and salvation? No, because man can resist God's grace and salvation. God will draw all men and women to himself, yet they still have a free will to either receive Christ or reject Christ. And yet Calvinists insist that Paul's remarks in Romans 9, verses 19 to 21, are saying that very thing, that a person can't resist the will of God. Look again at Romans 9, starting with verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me thus? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor, another for dishonor? This verse seems to create the impression that we as individuals have, listen, no power of choice and are simply overpowered and molded by God like helpless clay in the potter's hands and as such God fashions some as vessels of honor for heaven and he fashions others as vessels of dishonor for hell again predestination and reprobation but listen to me listen to me as we're winding this down who is Paul addressing primarily in Romans chapter 9 through 11 the Jews Israel right And being a Jew, listen, and a rabbi, Paul seems to be drawing on an illustration that would have been very familiar to his Jewish readers, and talking about the potter and the clay. That's what he's talking about in Romans 9, right? Where do you think he got that? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. Now, this was during a time of national apostasy when God was about to judge Israel. He says in Jeremiah 18, verse 1, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the, in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Well, that sounds pretty clear. We have no partner. We're just clay in the potter's hand, right? Listen to me. Don't miss this, okay? I want you to notice very carefully what's being said here. Why did the potter have to remake the vessel into something else, into an object of wrath, instead of an instrument or an object of blessing? Because it was marred in the potter's hand, right? You have only two choices here. Either God purposely marred it, in other words, forced Israel to sin against him, or God had planned to use and bless Israel, but those plans had to be changed. Listen, judgment had to come because they chose to sin against God. They chose to sin against God, and I believe, of course, the latter. Israel turned away from God. Israel got into idolatry and immorality, and God had to judge them, listen to me, remaking them into an object of his wrath uh, instead of his original desire to use them as an instrument of blessing. But be very clear it was because they freely chose to disobey God that God had to. Re- his, his original intention was they were his chosen people. He told them at Mount Sinai. If you want to be my people, then you come to me, you obey me, you keep the terms of the covenant, and I will bless you above every nation on the face of the earth. That's what God's original, he was the potter. It was going to shape this nation into the greatest nation on the face of the earth and would perpetuate the nation based on their continual obedience to God. That was his original plan. Is that the way it worked out? No, they were marred in his hand. What does that mean? They chose to turn against him. They chose to get into idolatry and morality. This forced God to remake them. Couldn't use them as an object of blessing anymore. He had to remake them into an object of his wrath. But that was only because they chose. They chose to turn from God. They were not, listen, they were not helpless clay in God's hands who then forced them to do what he wanted without any choice on their part, because the passage goes on to make that very clear. Back in Jeremiah 18, verse 7, God says, The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning a disaster and devising a plan against you. Return now everyone from his evil way and make your ways and your doings good. And they said, that is hopeless. So we will walk according to our own plans and we will everyone obey the dictates of his evil heart. Do you see it there? I mean, here again we see the issue is not the predetermined, irresistible will of God, but the free will of man. I wanted to bless you. You were like clay in my hands. I was going to make you a vessel of honor for the whole world to see. But your hard heart, you hardened your heart against me. And because of that, I had to remake you into an object of my wrath and bring judgment against you. Listen to me. A person, whether they be Jew or Gentile, how they respond to God's grace will determine whether they will be a vessel of honor or dishonor. Whether they will experience God's mercy or wrath here on this earth and then forever. It's up to them. This is something that Paul brought out in Romans where he said, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for Destruction. Don't miss this. The word prepared in Romans 9.22 does not suggest that God made Pharaoh or anyone else a vessel of wrath. It's not, Paul's not saying that. He is not The word prepared doesn't suggest that it was God who said in eternity past you're going to be a vessel of wrath or dishonor. The verb is in the middle voice in the Greek which is reflexive. Reflexive. It should read, They have prepared themselves for destruction. They, of their own free will, have chosen a course of action in life contrary to God's word, rejecting God's truth, His salvation. Therefore, they have prepared themselves for destruction. Listen. According to Romans 9.23, God prepares men for glory, but sinners prepare themselves for judgment. And here again, the passage implies that the vessels of wrath are objects of wrath, listen, because they refused to repent. They did not willingly bring honor to God. They didn't want to glorify God of their own free will, so they became objects of God's wrath. They are prepared for destruction by their own sin and disobedience and rebellion, not by some arbitrary decree of God. This is evident from the fact that they are, it says that um, they are endured by God with much long suffering. This suggests that God was patiently waiting for them to repent so that they could go listen from vessels of wrath to vessels of mercy. I mean, God wants people to be saved. He's not looking for any reason to throw them into hell. He wants them to come to Christ, right? That he was waiting patiently. He endured with much long-suffering these vessels of wrath and all their ungodly things that he did all the way they lived. But he waited patiently for some, and no doubt, many have. I mean, we were all vessels of wrath at one time. Everybody in this room has gone from vessels of wrath, the wrath of God abiding upon us, to vessels of honor, sanctified. Now we are God's children. But no one can ever say that God never gave me a chance to be saved. On the day of judgment, God is going to the jumbotron he's got in heaven there well you never gave me a chance to be to receive christ lord really he's going to play every opportunity i'm convinced that they had to receive christ every goofy christian they gave him a track or you know witness to them at work or at the coffee shop or wherever god is going to show them they had ample opportunities to receive christ again i'll quote peter one last time we'll close 2 Peter 3 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of our God. If you don't understand the character of your God, you will never going to be able to walk properly for the Lord. I mean, if my concept of God was that He only loved a few but not everyone well maybe he doesn't love me I mean you understand that well if God doesn't love me then maybe I don't care about him I want anything to do with him because he hasn't blessed me my life is a wreck well it's not God's fault but people blame God but see if you don't understand the character of God how in the world can you possibly draw close to him and walk with him This is why this is so important. This is why Paul quoted this out of our passage in Exodus. That's why he spent an entire chapter developing it, because it's very important that we understand the character of our God. So next week, God willing, we will continue (laughs) with the plagues. I know you're all looking forward to that. Um, And uh, we will see what God has to teach us through those things. Father... We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace, your mercies, which are new every morning. We thank you, Lord, that you are a good and loving God, that you desire all men and women to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, and that that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, not just for the elect, as John told us in 1 John 2, verse 1, that Jesus Christ, his death, his blood were the propitiation, for our sins, but not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Thank you, Lord. You're no respecter of persons. You're drawing all men and women to yourself, and no matter how bad a life they've lived, your grace is greater, and you will receive them as children if they will come to Christ. And so, Father, thank you. As we continue to work through our study in Exodus, Lord, we pray that you'd bless it, and give us uh, insights that we can use to then uh, live our lives by. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.